We are, we've been preaching through the book of Galatians. Uh, we are finishing chapter 5 today. We're in verse 16 through 26. And uh, we will finish Galatians chapter 6 by the end of this month. And so we will have preached through the entire book of Galatians. And that's what we do here. We preach through books of the Bible. Uh, that we would understand the Word of God, that we would understand uh, who He is and what He has done for us through Jesus Christ in the very context in which He has given it to us. And so uh, uh, we are making our way through Galatians. And if you have been here from the beginning, then you know that uh, Galatians is an amazing book and has played an amazing role in history. 500 years ago, it was used uh, in very important ways in the Reformation. Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door, thus starting the Reformation. And it sparked because of justification by faith. We are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works. And that's really what the book of Galatians is about. In fact, 2,000 years ago, Paul goes to Galatia where he shares the gospel. People hear the gospel. A church is birthed. And then later, some people called Judaizers come and they say, you know, Paul, he got the gospel wrong. It's not really a gospel of grace, but you actually need to do works. You need to complete your salvation with your works. You need to keep the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to do, do, do. And Paul writes back with the message of no. The gospel is all about what Christ has done. It is finished. And so that's really what this book is about. And that's what we have been reading about. In Galatians chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, Paul has been writing and defending the gospel. He's been communicating how we are saved by grace through faith alone and not by any works at all. And so he does that for four lengthy chapters, laying just thick theology but one thing we know is theology always leads to practice. It affects the way we live. And so as we're getting into chapter 5 and then into chapter 6, Paul has been saying, and this is what it looks like lived out. If we have been saved by grace, through faith, freed from the law, we're no longer slaves, what does that look like lived out? And that's what Paul has been telling us. And one of the primary things we have seen in the last two weeks is that as Christians who have been saved by grace, through faith in Jesus, we love other people. In fact, that was the main thing we saw last week. In verse 14, it says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is love. It's not something, a love that we are making within ourselves, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and just trying to love each other real hard. But it's a love that God is forming in us. And that is spilling over from us into the very lives of others. But as we finished last week, one of the questions we're faced is, well, how do we do this? How do we love? I mean, if we were to take a tally, do, do we all love everyone well? Do we find it easy to love? We'd say, no, I struggle with loving people sometimes. But we see that the Christian life is one of love. So, so how do we do this? What does this look like? And that's our text today. The title is Life in the Spirit. The main point will be as Christians, we have been given the Spirit that we would wage war on the flesh and live like Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at today. So I encourage you, go ahead and stand as we read the Bible today. We stand as we read Scripture simply because we believe that the Word of God comes to us inspired by God. So we do so to remind ourselves and as a way of honoring our 
God and Father. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. This is one of those texts that you've given us that is is extremely practical. God, help us to see this. Help us to see that you have given us your spirit that we would live like you, that we'd be transformed into the image of Christ. God, help us to understand that this all takes place by faith and through what you have promised that you would do in us. God, help us to understand this. Give us wisdom. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So I just want to give you the quick structure of the text. That's on the the first side of your bulletin. We're going to go through that quickly. I just kind of want you to see it. Uh, It begins in verse 16, walk by the Spirit. We then see in verse 16, 17, and 18 that there's going to be this war of desires that take place. Uh, As you become a Christian, you now have the Spirit dwelling in you, but there's a war against the flesh now, and we'll get into that. Paul then wants us to understand this war, so he gives us a picture of the flesh and a picture of the fruit of the Spirit. And then after this, he says, okay, so how is it that we walk now? What does it look like to walk by the Spirit? He says, we crucify the flesh, and we keep in step with the Spirit. So that's kind of the, the flow of the text. But what I want to do now is I want to come back to the question that we asked. How do we live the Christian life? How do we love others? How is it that we do this? And so the first thing is we recognize the new reality we live in. And so we have blanks today, just in case you didn't notice. We don't always have blanks Threw those in there to make sure you're, I don't know, just to be different. So there's blanks. If you like that, great. Um, We recognize the new reality that we live in. If you look at verse 16, we walk by the Spirit. Now this is a command by Paul. Paul's not saying maybe you do this, but he's saying this is how you live now. You walk by the Spirit. The word walk refers to our lifestyle. He's saying this is how you live. As an unbeliever, you live this way, but now as a believer, you are characterized by walking by the Spirit. And so who is this Spirit that we walk by? Well, he's the third person of the Trinity. If you're new to church, if you're kind of checking out just uh, Christianity and the gospel today, uh, the Bible teaches that there is a triune God, and if this is new to you, it might sound a little confusing. If this isn't new to you, it might sound still a little confusing. Uh, But we believe in a God, three persons, but there's one God. There's Father, Son, Spirit, and yet there is one 
God. And so we see that the Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. The Father sends the Son to the cross, that he would die on the cross, and that by belief in him, we would be saved. And at the point that we believe, in Galatians chapter 3, we see that by faith we receive the Spirit. And so the Father sends the Son, we believe in him, we now receive the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? He's going to cause us to live like God. Jesus. In John 16, 14, this is what Jesus says about the Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit is always working in your life and in my life to bring us more into the image of Jesus Christ. He's always leading us in Jesus Christ. That is his role within us. Now, I'm going to mention Galatians 2.20 probably a lot today, because in Galatians 2.20, Paul explains just this little tidbit of the Christian life, and really it's now that we're in chapter 5, he's fleshing that out. But if you remember, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ living in me is now the Spirit of Christ now dwelling in me, okay? This is what this is. For Christ to live in me, for me to be united to Christ, I have received the Spirit, and now the Spirit of God is living in me that I would become more and more like Jesus. So that's what it means in Galatians 2.20. Christ now lives in us, and we see in chapter 5, that means that the Spirit is now in us, leading us to become more and more like Jesus. And notice, when we live by the Spirit, we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Gratify means satisfy the desires of the flesh. Uh, And what does flesh mean? Well, flesh means our sinful desires. That's obviously what it means as we go through and we see uh, in verse 17 where it says the desires of the flesh and then we look at the works of the flesh. It's talking about those things that come within you, sinfulness, but it also refers to the fallen sinfulness of this world. Paul is saying we have been saved that we live now in the Spirit, right? That's, that's what he's saying. We've walked this way. Prior, we lived in the flesh. We lived this way. So the world is characterized by the flesh. The Christian is characterized by life in the Spirit. And so now we are living in the Spirit, no longer, in the, no longer according to the flesh. In verse 17, Paul says these are opposed to each other. The desires of the Spirit are opposed to the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the Spirit. And they are against one another. And the flesh wants to prevent you from doing the things you want to do. Do you ever find that's true? Do you ever find that you want to do things and yet you don't do them? You might find yourself saying something like, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. You ever struggle with that? That's Paul in Romans 7. You know that, right? That's literally his words. Things I want to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I do. There is a struggle now for the Christian. There is a war that we have been engaged in now by faith in Jesus Christ and that we would wage war against the flesh because it wants to keep us from following the Spirit. But one thing we need to remember is that these are not equal forces. Okay, This is not which one's going to win today, we don't know. The Spirit is infinitely stronger than the flesh. The Spirit is God, infinite and omnipotent in all of its power. He's always greater and stronger than the flesh. 
in the flesh we will see is a defeated enemy, which we will look at in a little bit. So Paul says, now we walk by the Spirit, not the desires of the flesh. They're opposed to one another. Verse 18, then he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He's again reminding us, you're free. You're free from the law, meaning you're free from the do more, do more, do more. But now it's been done for you in Jesus Christ that you can rest in his grace and the law no longer entices you to sin. Remember, if you see one of those signs that says like wet cement, what do you do? It says stay off, but what do you do? Draw your name, put your initials in there, do a happy face. That's what we do, right? Law incites our flesh. We go, oh, don't do it. Watch this. I'll do it. Mom says don't touch the cookies. Mom steps out of the room. We're getting the cookies, right? Um, that's what law does. But now we are, we are, because we have the Spirit, we're no longer under the law. So the law has lost its power to incite our flesh. And remember last week, now the law operates as our guide on how we love one another. And so now we have the Spirit. We don't live by the flesh. The flesh doesn't entice us, or the law doesn't incite the flesh anymore, but now it guides us on how to live. So Paul's reminding us what he said earlier in chapter 5. And then he wants us to understand, okay, I want you to understand the battle that we're in. So I want to give you a picture of the works of the flesh, and I want to give you a picture of the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what Paul does now. And he does that beginning in verse 19, where he talks about the works of the flesh. But I want to make a couple comments on the works of the flesh. We're not going to just dive into all of them. Um, but I want to say just three things. Uh, number one, let's start in verse 21, where Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, Paul has made it abundantly, abundantly clear. Good works will not get you into heaven, right? He's made that abundant and clear. Four chapters, you will not earn any grace before God because of your works. But what we see here, evil works will keep you out of heaven. Good works will not get you in. Evil works will keep you out. Paul says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, again, we do know, as we have just said, the flesh and the spirit are at battle with one another, right? And so there are times we do things that we don't want to do. We stumble, we sin. Paul is not talking about the Christian who sins and at times and stumbles, but yet is trying to live the faithful life. The words do such things mean practice, means habitually, means characterize the life. If the works of the flesh are what characterize us, then we have not been saved by God. We have not experienced His grace yet. Um, so that's the first thing that we see is that we must look. And so when we come to lists like these, what we're to do is we're to read them, even as Christians. We don't glaze over them saying, well, I know I'm a Christian, so I don't worry about these. But now we read them and we say, God, if, if these are present in my life, if there's any form of these, reveal them that I might repent of them, turn from them, and live for you. So we don't ignore lists like these, but we use them because these help us see, do I have any of these works of the flesh in me? What am I struggling with? That then we might repent. Uh, number two, the works of the flesh are non-relational. If you look at, if we begin, just look at the list starting in verse 19. 
Works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. So Paul starts with uh, just sexual sins. And if you look at most of the lists in the Bible, they seem to either start with sexual sins or include sexual sins throughout the list. Um, Paul is highlighting how these are non-relational we're not in relation with God. We're not in relation with other people. And evidence of that is we will have sex with people with no commitment. That, that's what we have here. Sexual immorality stands for fornication. Any type of sex with a member, uh, with, with someone else outside of a covenant membership of someone of another sex. That's what Paul is talking about here. And so if you've ever wondered where in the Bible does it say don't have sex before you're married, this would be one of those texts. But as we work, as we live in the flesh, we love to do things without commitment. We love to satisfy ourselves. And so sexual morality, impurity, impurity, and sensuality are always named as works of the flesh. But look at also, then he goes into idolatry and sorcery. Meaning, I will worship the things that I want to worship. And most likely, I will worship what I believe benefits me. Now, in the first century, what they would do is they would worship this God because it would promise a harvest. This God, they would worship because they wanted rain. This God, they would worship because they wanted what it had. And really, they were just saying, this is what I want, and so which God do I need to pray to so I get what I want? They determined their worship. And if this God wasn't working out, they would go to another God. Now look, then we're given this long list of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. These are, again, all descriptions of the flesh. And notice, these are what we do when people do not benefit us. If you are a benefit to me, if you help me, if you help me do the things I want, if you acknowledge me, if you serve me, then I like you being around me. But if you don't benefit me, if you don't help me, if you don't serve me, then I have no problem having fits of anger and causing division with you. I'm easily, I'm easily able to divide with you then. And if you have things that I want, I become jealous. Why? Because I'm operating under a legalistic mindset, and I know that I work harder than you, and I deserve it more than you. And so when you get something, I'm sitting there going, why does he get it? I should have it. You ever do that? That's part of the flesh in us. Now again, remember, Paul is describing the flesh the works of the flesh, things that are not to be now named in among us as believers. And then, the third thing I want you to see is that the works of the flesh, they're all about me. When we live by the flesh, I am the object of my desires. It's all about me. It's all about making sure people understand who I am, my self-worth, making sure people respect me. And about satisfying or satisfying and indulging all my fantasies, which is why drunkenness and orgies are now listed last. It's about just overindulgence. Whatever I want, I should be allowed to do, and I should have it in whatever measure I want. Now, just real quick, on drunkenness, the Bible is not against alcohol, just as the Bible is not against food. But just as the Bible is against gluttony, it's also against drunkenness. Does that make sense? Like, we're not going to make a law here at Timberline. If you want to be a member, you cannot drink alcohol. That would be bringing legalism in, right? But what we do see is that there's a way 
to use alcohol in a wrong way, which would be drunkenness, which would be a work of the flesh. Just the same as gluttony would be. It's a good thing we're not doing potluck, right? There's all these potlucks. Those are hard to stop. Um, so, okay, so Paul is giving us this list. This is who you're not. And so we read this list and we go, okay, God, where are these in me? Reveal these in me that I might repent of them. But now he's going to give us the fruit of the Spirit. He wants us to know you've been saved from these to now live like this. And so now Paul is going to show us the fruit of the Spirit. And so let's make some comments here. Uh, Number one, fruit is what identifies you as a believer. Okay, so fruit is what identifies. When we read things like this, the fruit here... We should not look at these as optional. We should not look at these as, well, some Christians do them, some Christians don't do them. Fruit is extremely important in the Christian life. Let me just give a few verses just to show that. Matthew chapter 7, verse 20. Jesus says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits, those who follow me, those who don't follow me. Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He's talking to the Jews. He's like, you are not producing the fruits. Well, take it away and give it to people who do believe in me and live that way, produce the fruits. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance brings about fruit. John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. How is God glorified? Through are bearing much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do we show that we are disciples? By the fruit of our life. John 15, 16. You did not choose me. I chose you. Why did you choose me, Jesus? And appointed that you should go and bear fruit. So fruit is very, very important. So Paul is not making something up here. He's not trying to tell us something new. He's just literally taking what Jesus has said throughout the Gospels about the life of a believer, the life of a disciple, and he's saying, now this is what that looks like. So fruit is important. The fruit, what we do, how we live, all comes from our heart, what's inside of us. Do we have the spirit inside of us, or are we still operating in the works of the flesh? Now then, As we say that, these are not optional, we want to be careful, this is not a list of do's and don'ts. Okay, so we're not entering into legalism. All right, we'll make our chart each day, we'll put love, joy, peace, patience on them, and we'll check. Did I do them? Great, I did that one, check, I don't have to worry about that one. We're not turning this into a ladder, so now I earn my way to uh, Christ, or I prove how much higher I am on the ladder than you are. But rather, this is what the Spirit is doing in us. Like, this is the good news. You've been saved to become like Jesus. The Spirit is now in you, and the fruit of the Spirit is what that looks like for Him to be in you. So every year, like January 1st, you know, we start every year. Wherever we're at with the fruit of the Spirit, as we continually grow year by year, by December 31st, we should be producing more fruit. Over time, over the the years and the decades, we'll grow more fruitful because the Spirit is in us, working in us, creating a harvest of righteousness in us. So remember, this is what the Spirit is doing in us. And lastly, the fruit of the Spirit is Christ being formed in you. So really what we have here is a picture of Jesus. We read the fruit of the Spirit. Don't think primarily about you. Think Jesus. The Spirit is in you that he would what? Lead you to live like Jesus. Remember Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, 
Christ lives in me. What is that? That's the Spirit now living in me, transforming me, that I would live more like Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this list, we're actually given a sketch of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of Jesus. That's how we're to look at the list. And we're to say, this list is is what Jesus looks like, and this is what it looks like to follow him. This is what his spirit is doing in me. So if you're a believer, take great comfort. This is who you are and who you're becoming more like, Jesus Christ. This is what he's producing within you. So if you ever want to... There are some prayers you pray and you're not sure how it's going to be answered, right? But there are some prayers you know God will answer every time. If you pray the fruit of the Spirit, you're literally praying, God, make me more like Christ. He will answer this every single time. So take great, go- take great comfort here. Uh, so let's just read through this list. We're just going to make a few comments about them as we go. I just want to make sure we see how they lead us to Jesus. Number one, love. We could say a lot here. God is love. Um, in 1 John chapter 4, 9, uh, God, or John writes this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. So God says, I want to reveal my love. How do I do that? I send Jesus. Jesus is the very love of God. And he comes showing, demonstrating the love of God that now by faith his love would be in us and we would show his love to others which goes right back to chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Amen, indeed. That, so, I, again, when we go through this list, remember, it's not, guys, you've got to work hard to be loving. It's, this is what God is doing in you. This is what the Spirit is leading you to do. Joy. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we're told that for the joy set before him, Christ goes to the cross. He endures the cross. He endures hardship. So that now his spirit is in us that we might endure hardship with joy also. Not because we're so strong, not because you're tough, but because Christ is in you. We can now endure trials with joy. Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? He comes that we would have peace with God. He comes that now we would have peace with one another and peace with whatever situation we are in. Isn't that good news? Like even as we look at the world that we live in and we say, wow, our president, or we look at South Korea or North Korea, and we look at just the various things, and we say, wow, there's a lot of things that can make me very anxious, and yet we can be at total peace because we believe in the God who controls all things. And it's not that we are just so strong that we can be peaceful, but that God is in us that we would experience his peace. Patience. All throughout the life of Jesus, we see patience, right? Just think of him with the disciples. Think about all the questions Peter asks. And Jesus is going, no, no, Peter, no, Peter. Jesus demonstrates peace with them, or patience with them. And aren't you glad God is patient with us? Isn't that a good thing? And guess what? God is patient with us, and now his patience is in us because Christ lives in us, that we might be patient with others. So when you say you're not a patient person, What you need to say is, I need to repent of my works of the flesh for not living in Christ because he is in me that I would be patient. Do you understand? Christ is now in you that we would be patient. Kindness and goodness, it's kind of hard to separate these. They both mean honest and generous and good. And throughout the life of Christ, we see his generosity. We see his goodness. And now he lives in us that we might be kind and good to others. Faithfulness. 
In all the Gospels, we see Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, where regularly throughout the Gospels, he says, and I will go be crucified. And the disciples at that moment were always told they don't know what he means at that moment. It's always kind of funny when you're reading, like, when will they get this? Jesus faithfully lived his life in obedience to God that now we would live in faithfulness too. But it's not because we are so faithful, but it's because God is faithful that we can be faithful. Do you understand that? Christ living in us is that we would be faithful. He perseveres us in the faith. In Philippians 1.6, it talks about how God will complete the good work he began in you. He is faithful that we might be faithful. Gentleness. Throughout the Gospels, we see the gentleness of Jesus. You look at the Samaritan woman and how he comes alongside of her. And he gives her the message of the gospel that then she would believe in him. Or, or you think about him with lepers. Now, lepers are people who were unclean and they had to stand away from society. And anytime you came near them, they would yell, unclean, unclean, unclean. Because you're not supposed to come near them. But what did Jesus do? In great gentleness, he walks to them and not only up to them, but he touches them. Complete outcasts he would embrace and hold. He would bring the little children to them and say, it's for the kingdom of God that the little children has been made for. Jesus is gentle that then we might be gentle. In self-control. If you think about it, on the cross, Jesus demonstrates this amazing self-control. He's been mocked, he's been crucified, he's been spat upon. And now what does he say? Luke chapter 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, up to this point, you might say, okay, I can see how God's going to work in me, and I can be loving and joy and peace and patience and those things. But this one, I don't know about. To actually be persecuted, to be tortured, and to then pray for my enemies, there's no way I do that. But yet, isn't this the testimony of the early church? If we go into the book of Acts, we see Stephen. Stephen is a disciple and a deacon of the early church. He's arrested, and they're going to now stone him. As they're hurling stones at Stephen, this is what he says at the end of chapter 7 in Acts. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that not echo Jesus? Now, is that because Stephen was just an amazing Christian? Was that because he was so much stronger than we are? It's because that's what the Spirit is doing within him. And that's the same spirit that's working in you and me right now. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, the fruit of the spirit is a reality in you. And it's becoming more and more a reality every single day in your life. Because in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read that we're being made into the image of Christ degree by degree by degree by degree. And so when you read this, see Jesus and know this is who you are being made into. Now, we have to be careful here because it is very true that the Spirit is working this in us right now, but we don't want to get the wrong impression that we have absolutely no role in this. We're not like Plato. You ever play with Plato? Love Plato. You can take Plato, it's inanimate, has no feelings at all, it has no desires what you do with it. You can make it into a ball, you can make it into a pancake, you can roll it into like a long snake. It doesn't care. It literally does whatever you want, offering really no resistance. And if it does, you, I think you put water on it or something to loosen it up a little bit more. Um, you can do whatever you want with Plato. We are not Plato. God has now saved us that he would work in us through our heart, our wills, and our mind. 
So he's transforming us to be like him and that we would desire to be made like Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's not just you're going to now have this fruit of the Spirit just pouring out of you and you just cross your arms and say, great, do it. And like all of a sudden, like, you know, Care Bear stare. Do you remember those? A few of you do. Some of you are going, Care Bears. And you know none of our kids know that, don't you? And that is a sad thing. Anyways, maybe it's not that sad. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. We are told that now we have become an heir through God. Romans 8, 17, we are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. The grace that saves us and makes us to be like, the grace that saves us and gives us the righteousness of God is also the grace that now gives us all that Christ possesses by faith. Do you know that? You have all that Christ possesses now. He holds nothing back from you. In Revelation, we have some of the coolest pictures that Jesus sits on the throne room of God, on the throne with God, and we sit on the throne with Jesus. He holds nothing back from followers of Christ. And so these things, this fruit of the Spirit, this is not only a picture of Jesus, it's a picture of who he's transforming you to be and that you would desire to live this way. Let me give you a text that kind of shows this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. I'd encourage you, write this one down and go over it later. But Paul says this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's verse 12. Basically, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Become more like Jesus. That's what that means. If we stop there, it'd be, oh, that's kind of a hard command. How do we do that? Maybe only some of us are going to be able to do that. Maybe the ones with more faith or the ones who work harder or or the ones who are just better or, or something like that. But that's not where Paul leaves us. He now gives us the grace in which this is fulfilled. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here it is. Work out your own salvation and it's God who's working in you that he would transform your will and your desires that you would be able to do this. Do you see that? Whenever God gives a command, he also gives the grace supplied to meet that command. There is no command in Scripture that you do in your own strength. Everything we do by the grace that God gives us through faith. So now as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, and we're saying, okay, I want to demonstrate this fruit of the Spirit. This isn't a work that I do of my own, but it's going to be a work of faith that God's now going to do in me. And so how do we do this? What does this look like to to now produce this fruit, to love one another, to actually walk by the Spirit? And so we just have three things. Number one, resist the flesh. We see in verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now the word resist that I used was simply because I I wanted to use an R. Um, It's not very strong. The real, we should say, we kill the flesh. We have been saved that we would wage war against the flesh. That goes right back up to verses 16 and 17. These desires are against each other. We have been saved. We no longer live by the works of the flesh. These works of the flesh now want to prevent us from living like Jesus, but we now have the spirit that we would kill the works of the flesh. And if you look at Christianity, one thing we see is that we love others, right? but we kill the things in us that would prevent us from loving others. 
Okay, so the Christianity is not a violent religion against others. It's a violent religion against the flesh of the works. And this isn't something that Paul just brings up here. But in Colossians chapter 3, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. He says you need to kill the things that are in you of the old self. In Romans 8.13, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. The life of the Christian is one of killing. And and you might say, well, I thought, wait, love, joy, peace, patience. I mean, that all sounds really good. How does this go in hand in hand? Well, it's through the killing of these things that we experience more of the fruit of the Spirit. Like when you go out to your garden, if you don't weed it, what's going to happen? The weeds will come and suck the life from what you want to grow. You go out and you pull the weeds that life would go where it's supposed to. In our own life, What we do is we pull the weeds, we kill the sin that wants to prevent the way the Spirit is working in us. Does that make sense? And Paul doesn't make this up, because Paul just learned from Jesus, and in Jesus, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You get that? Where does this daily crucifying come from? It comes from Jesus, who said, daily we take up the cross to follow Jesus. So let me explain just a little bit what this looks like. When we're saved, our old self is crucified. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 5.24, we are now the ones doing the crucifying. So it was crucified, and yet we now continually kill the flesh on a daily basis. Now, when someone is crucified, they're counted dead. As soon as you're nailed to the cross, you are a dead man even while you're still breathing. It's kind of like the guy who is going to get lethal injection. As he walks down the aisle to where he's going to now receive the lethal injection, he is a dead man walking. He will not walk back. He'll be pushed on a cart, right? He's a dead man walking. He will not come back. He's as good as dead. The man who's been crucified is dead. He will not come off the cross. The Roman soldiers are professionals at killing people. No one comes off the cross alive, but the person may be up there for two, three, or four days. It's a slow, agonizing death on the cross. And our old self is crucified. And it's dead, and yet it's still crying out, still trying to tempt us. And that will happen right up until the point either we die or Jesus returns. Okay, so so this flesh is going to cry out. So this daily crucifying is going to happen on a regular basis till either Christ returns or until we die and be with Christ. And so each day, we're called to grab our hammer and go up to the cross and hit those those nails into the cross more and more. Because our flesh is trying to pull himself off. And yet we come to the cross and we say, no, no. I've been lived by the Spirit. I've I've been saved by grace through faith. Um, I've been freed from the law. The Spirit is in me. The works of the flesh no longer characterize me. And so we take the hammer of the Word of God and we nail the nails back into the cross, holding the flesh up there. And that is a daily activity that we do. And this is something I think is greatly neglected, though. I think it's greatly neglected. I don't think that we operate as though we're in a war. I think we operate like we're on a cruise ship often. And we're just kind of going through life, 
And if we get angry, well, that's okay. We get angry. We'll get over it. If we're patient, we're good. But if we're not patient, that's okay, too. If we read our Bibles, great. But if we don't read our Bibles, that's okay. It just kind of, we're on a cruise ship. Whatever happens, happens. And life is just great. And it's all about, you know, popsicles and suckers. That's what it would be for my kids. They love those things. Um, But that's not the way God describes the Christian life. It's one of great joy. It is. But it's a joy that takes place through the killing of our flesh. Look, there is, no, there is no salvation without the cross, right? There's no salvation. There's no transformation without the cross either. If we're going to continually grow in the image of Christ, it's going to be through the daily crucifying of our old self. If we were to go to Long Beach, California, to the harbor there, um, there is uh, the Queen Mary. Now, the Queen Mary is an interesting boat. It was used both in wartime and peacetime. It was a cruise ship, but in World War II, it was a troop carrier. And so what they've done, either there's a line drawn in it, or they literally cut it in half. I'm not sure which one. But on one half, it's the cruise ship. And it's, it's good-looking wood on the decks. And there's china, and there's fine silverware, and all that kind of stuff. And there's beautiful beds and suites that hold 3,000 people. It, it's, it's three football lengths long, I think it is. On the other side of the ship, there's dirt, there's grease, there's metal trays, and there's 15,000 bunks because they're stacked eight high upon one another. One operates in peacetime, one operates in wartime. We have been saved to engage war against the flesh. That is the Christian life. To live by the Spirit is to kill the flesh. It's one of great joy because what we're seeing is as, as we're killing the flesh, we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. We're becoming more gentle and more loving and more faithful and growing in goodness and kindness. All the very things that we see here, that takes place through the killing of the flesh. There's no salvation without the cross. There's no transformation without the cross. And so, so what does this look like? Again, this isn't something you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you say, all right, let's do this. I got it. I'm really strong, so I'll just start overcoming my impatience and the fact that I'm angry. It's an act of faith. Let's go back to Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So now I live by faith. So if I'm going to kill the flesh, it's by faith looking at Jesus and seeing all that he has given me. We do that through the word of God. We do that with believers encouraging us. Um, So what that means is, let's say you're single, you're going on a date. You don't wait until you're in the back seat of the car to start trying to destroy the flesh. Okay, You, You do that prior to ever going on the date. When you're in the Word that morning, you're saying, God, I'm going on a date this night. Lord, I know that my flesh is going to want to do things that will not honor her, her parents, or you, God. Father, I pray for patience. I pray for self-control. I pray that I'd be good to her, to you. And we pray that right now that any of the flesh would be killed. And then we go back to a promise that we might find in Matthew chapter 5 where the pure in heart will see God. And we say, God, I want to see you more than I want to see her. I want to be with you and to experience all that you are because you are far greater than whatever she can give me. And so we're killing the desires of the flesh by coming to the word, looking at the promises God gives us and counting them as greater than whatever the flesh promises. Does that make sense? Um, another example, 
We come home, we get angry. You ever get angry when you come home? (laughs) No. Okay, so you come home, so pretend with me. Um, You come home and you get angry because things aren't the way you want it. Uh, Life is not great. Nobody is serving you, you know, whatever it is. And, And so what happens, though, is often we come home, we get angry, and then what do we do? We just stay angry, right? And we justify it. Well, I'm angry because you didn't do this, because you didn't do this, because you didn't do this. And I just justify my works of the flesh. The fact that I want to be divisive right now. The fact that I want to be just having the, the fits of rivalries and anger. I justify it. Because I say, you didn't do this. You're not recognizing me. And we're right back into a life of slavery. We're right back into operating in that legalistic mindset, the works of the flesh. But rather, what are we to do? We see the anger within us, and we kill it. We say, God, I know that you're in me. I am angry right now. Why am I angry? I'm angry because this person did this. Why does that make me mad? Because they didn't recognize me because they didn't serve me, because they didn't love me the way I wanted to be loved, and therefore I feel I'm justified. God, I look at your son Jesus Christ, and he came, and they didn't recognize him, and they tortured him, and they crucified him, and he responded in love. And your love is now in me that I would love here in this situation. Because it's by love that we reveal that we are disciples, right? Love is the primary characteristic of a disciple that's why it starts at the head of the fruit of the spirit and so we come and we kill the sin we don't just justify it but we must bring it to an end and that's why the spirit has given in you we are not slaves to our anger slaves to the sin within us but we begin the spirit that when it arises we kill us because hear this the biggest problem in every relationship is you it's me That's the biggest problem, because it's my sinfulness in me. It's not what you do, it's how I respond to it. And the way I respond will either be, well, I'm I'm operating by works of the flesh, or I'm operating by life in the Spirit. The biggest problem in every relationship is me. It's not the other person. They are simply only giving you the occasion in which will allow the flesh to come out. Does that make sense? So it's already there, and so now they're giving the occasion for it to come out. So our job, we can't change other people, but we know that the Spirit is working in us to transform us, that we would live like Him. Last two I'll go through real quick. Uh, We respond to the Spirit. Verse 25, we read that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. This is a military term. It means stay in formation. It means where the Spirit goes, we go. And where does the Spirit go? Where He's going to take us wherever the Word of God leads us. So if we want to know where the Spirit goes, we're going to be people of the Word that we understand how God is calling us to live. Also, we will listen to other people because if you've been given the Spirit of God, then you have godly counsel for me. And if I have the Spirit of God, then I have godly counsel for you. doesn't mean we're always right, but we talk to others that we would respond to the Spirit in the right way. Number three, remember the end is coming. Go back to Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The battle's not going to keep going. There's a day it comes to end. And that will either be on the day we die or on the day Christ returns. And the hope of our righteousness will come, which is Jesus. And he transforms us to be like Jesus. And so this is not a battle that will last forever. Listen, you have been saved and given the spirit that you would live like Jesus. This isn't a hypothetical, but he is in you, transforming you. And you have the spirit that you can live 
this way. And the way we do it is by faith in God, killing sin, and walking behind the Spirit, walking in formation with the Spirit. You've been saved to do this. Uh, Paul says in 1.6 Philippians, God will complete it. This is not something that might happen. He is working this in you. So take great comfort. Wherever you're at today, God is growing you to be more and more like Jesus every day. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we are saved by grace. We thank you that now by faith we live in you and that your spirit is in us, leading us and guiding us, that we become more and more like you. God, continually transform me to transform us, transform us as a church that we would live a life of love, that the fruit of the Spirit would be growing in us and there would be a great harvest of righteousness here because of what you are doing. May we demonstrate the fruit here, at home, at work, in our neighborhoods, that God, people would see you in us. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.